You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a philosophical, critical, confessional, interstitial, theological, and always delectable conversation between Christian intellectuals. Your hosts are three Christian college professors, Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode number 105, and I am Nathan Gilmore, Assistant Professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I am joined here deep in the semester when our brains get muddled, so forgive us, oh listeners, by uh, two good friends. One, David Grubbs, coming at you from Kansas. David, how are you doing today? I'm pretty decent. It snowed here. You are kidding so, me. I'll be I'm I'm sitting here itching from a sunburn. You. So I <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's it snowed last night. We had a beautiful sixties and seventies weekend and then it decided Monday night that it was going to snow and that freezing is rain. Awfully late in the year for that to happen to you, David. That that should be happening in March. Right. That, I mean right. that's true, but I mean, it's it, it's Kansas. I think the 60s and 70s is what cli- is what's normal for climate here at the moment. But we're kind of at the mercy of whatever weather other states want to shove at. Yeah, that's true. You don't have any hills. That's <laughs> right, that's why the right. summers are so terrible in Kansas and Nebraska. You get that that wind from the southwest. But you know, we talk about weather now almost exclusively. We should just do a weather episode. Clearly, <laughs> have Dan that might actually back on. be fun. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, well, I anyway. heard from down the well anyway. Sorry. At any anyway. rate, coming at us from the cold northern lands of Minnesota, Dr. Michael Farmer. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm pretty good, although you've got to learn the lesson here, Nathan. At the end Uh-oh. of the semester, we do light episodes, not heavy episodes <laughs> where we have to read 16th century theology. <laughs> well... <laughs> We should be doing an episode on cartoons or oranges <laughs> or naps. I don't know how much you can get out of oranges. I think I told you guys this on Facebook, but I haven't said it on the podcast. I had a dream a few weeks ago that I was listening to Entitled Opinions, which Praise Be is back from its uh, 10-month hiatus. But their episode was on nods in my dream, N-O-D-S. <laughs> like thought, like with yeah, your okay. head? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought okay, or, that's, uh, that's, not land of. <laughs> that sounds like uh, that sounds like something Harrison would do, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, and he he would still manage a twelve minute monologue at the beginning about nodding. <laughs> I was gonna say the silence must be heard, but that's out of date. Yeah. The... <laughs> well, and then I, uh, you know, the other podcast that made its return this week was uh, the Philosopher Zone from Australia. Uh, unfortunately, you know, with the death of Alan Saunders. Uh, that podcast went on hiatus for several months, but it seems like they are going to 
start a new season. I'll have to uh, resubscribe. I I deleted it from my roster because I figured it wasn't coming back. Yeah, I never did delete it, and it it just you know fortuitously showed up. And it's an interview with a an American philosopher about the concept of the public. It's nice little episode. It was nice to have it back, even as we continue to miss Alan Saunders in the humanities podcasting world. Well, Entitled Opinions mm-hmm. is back. Philosopher's Zone is back. Is CWC next? Chris Garretts, we're talking to you, dude. If he's listening. <laughs> Come back. Come back. And Sam. Yes. Well, anyway, guys, uh, on the blog, uh, I posted a little list of 50 books uh, for a few of my students who are aspiring seminarians. We've gotten some good feedback on that, some people suggesting uh, some books to fill some gaps that I left. Now, nobody's following the rule that I set down that you had to suggest one to take off the list, but that's all right, too. <laughs> Inclusive, not exclusive. We're, we're not big into the rule thing here at the Christian Humanist, so <laughs> that, that, that is just fine. Uh, we've also heard from our friend and listener, Brandon, on the recent Dante posts. Uh, Brandon, hopefully by the time this one goes live, I will have caught up with those. Uh, I'm about to teach the end of the purgatory to my English majors tomorrow, but I'm not nearly done blogging through it. Uh, so that'll be yet another thing that I need to catch up on this time of the semester. The list gets long. Uh, any other feedback we want to interact with guys before we move on? Oh, I should say something to Charles H who I think (laughs) offended or I offended on the Poe episode. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Charles. I'm glad you listen. I don't think you have terrible taste. I still think Poe sucks and the Ravens a turd. <laughs> he also gave so, us a long list of pop culture authors we're not allowed to do episodes on. The only one I'd ever heard of or ever read anyway was Heinlein. So I don't think uh, I don't think he has to worry about us infringing on his sacred wait. space. You've never heard of Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh yeah, I've read I've read Doyle. I forgot he was on there. And Dumas. I've heard Three of Three Musketeers. Never, never never read it. Ah. Okay. All right. I don't I don't have the the right. taste for that swashbuckling that you do, uh, David. You know when I when I looked at this comment, I saw I saw your list, Charles, and I was like Alexander Dumas. Yeah. Woohoo. Conan Doyle. Mm-hmm. Lovecraft. Yep. Robert Jordan. I met that guy. Surprisingly nice. Um. And then Carter S had a pretty nice too, a pretty nice list too, because he tossed in Robert Howard. So, yeah, I, I'm apparently I am also a, a a populist knuckle dragger, but you know, there's I, no surprise there. I never called anyone a knuckle dragger. <laughs> <laughs> okay, although it's a lovely image. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I figure if I'm going to be a Robert Howard fan, knuckle dragging is. Yeah, I mean, he would probably see that as a good thing. I don't you know, know who that big, is. Guy that invented uh, Conan the Barbarian. So, yeah. Or Conan. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I've never heard his name pronounced like the detective writer's name. <laughs> Sorry, I literally was was looking at the, the, the blog page and saw the name Robert Howard with Arthur Conan Doyle in the tail of my eye and like okay, okay. Conan Doyle invaded and so now <laughs> and now forever in my mind Conan the Barbarian is gonna have Conan Doyle's little mustache. Nice. I just pictured awesome. him wearing a deer soccer. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. 
Well, at any rate, guys, let's go ahead and dive into today's conversation. Uh, I wanted to do a theology episode, so uh, reaching back into the 16th century, uh, the year is 1520, and our conversation partner today, guys, is none other than Martin Luther. I was hoping you were going to give us like a full paragraph. The year is 1520. Indoor plumbing has not yet been invented. Everyone has to go outside the ditch. The plague. In a world where... And, and all over northern Germany, everyone's doing a little dance called... Well, I wasn't fast enough to think of the dance. Well, Michael, I, I largely didn't do that paragraph because David is so good at it. So, David, I'm going to pitch you the first question here on Martin Luther's Concerning Christian Liberty. Uh, the year is 1520. We're in the months leading up to the Diet of Worms. Uh, Luther is on Rome's radar, to be sure, but he's not yet excommunicated. Uh, we're still years away from Luther's fa famous showdown with Erasmus. So... David, talk for a few minutes about the dedicatory epistle to this uh, treatise. Uh, take a moment or two to comment on some of the rhetorical moves you see in there. And tell us, you know, whatever else you need to tell us about the historical moment, Pope Leo. Do that grubs thing you do. <laughs> well, um, I'm probably, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to be uh, the best Martin Luther biography guy. Uh, we probably we should probably get Captain Finn on for that one, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the dedicatory epistle at the beginning that that was probably the the thing that um, surprised me most when I got to the beginning of this and was like dedicated by Martin Luther to Pope Leo the Sixth, tenth. Anywho, um. Yeah, because most of what people know about or remember of Martin Luther is his in, basically in incendiary uh, in the incendiary comment against the the, the Roman papacy. Um, you know his his contempt for it. Uh, it's the Antichrist. It's Babylon. Well, this is coming to us from. Before that had gotten quite that bad, though well, yeah. <laughs> still not a, not a still not a super fan of Rome, right? <laughs> but uh, if I had to boil down this dedicatory epistle, um, it would be, "What's a nice pope like you doing in a town like this?" <laughs> um, things like uh, I have called you a Daniel in Babylon. <laughs> um, you're a Daniel. Daniel in the midst of lions, a lamb in the midst of wolves. Uh, with Ezekiel, you dwell among scorpions. Um, you know, Babel, uh, the the court of Rome is more corrupt than Babylon or Sodom, and uh, he feels he feels pity for the fact that uh, poor Leo is stuck in this uh, in this hell of of Rome. It's just so terrible, and. Uh, he speaks quite admiringly of, uh, you know, Leo's reputation for, uh, for piety and for wisdom. Um, he's grieved that you, most excellent Leo, who were worthy of a better age, have been made pontiff in this one. So, uh, it, 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 mostly, he's he this dedicatory epistle was spent in saying, 
flattering things to Leo while at the same time saying, you know, you realize you realize that your court, you realize that the system that you're in charge of, particularly the center of that system in Rome, is pretty much the worst thing ever. Um, and he he also pretty much advises, it seems to me, pretty much advises Leo to um, ditch the papacy and get out of Rome before the fire falls. Um, you know, he briefly considers the possibility that uh, some kind of uh, reform might be accomplished by Leo, but then says that, you know, take to yourself three or four of the most learned, learned and best cardinals, um, but, but what are these among so many? You would all perish by poison before you could undertake to decide on a remedy. So basically, you know, Leo, if you try to reform, you're probably going to get assassinated. Odd that he would use that metaphor because Pope Leo is said to have killed several cardinals later, mind you, several car cardinals who uh, who attempted to assassinate him, to kill them via poison. Interesting. Maybe maybe Luther I... gave him the idea. <laughs> Preemptive strike. Um, but basically, he, he's he's trying to frame the opposition that's been coming from Romeward thus far as the uh, the presumptions, the presumptuous acts of Leo's underlings who are acting without. Uh, without Leo's full knowledge or full understanding of the situation, um, basically that he has bad servants, um, bad nuncios, bad ambassadors who uh, have wrongheadedly taken it, uh, you know, taken it as their mission to, you know, oppose Luther and his, uh, you know, his good, just biblical uh, notions of of reform. Um, and and they are slandering him to to the Pope when really he's the Pope's best friend by all rights. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I can't imagine that this was successful at all because <laughs> things turned out the way they did. <laughs> but it's really uh, kind of funny to me to to read this Luther knowing. Uh, having read a bit more from the later Luther, and especially Luther writing to Erasmus, mm. I mean, I mean, he's saying much, much nicer things about Leo than he ever said about Erasmus. Oh, yeah, you said a mouthful there. And my guess is that Erasmus pro probably deserved to have more nice things said of him than Leo did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Anything you guys want to toss in here? I mean, all I would add is that, you know, what we've got here is, you know, just a supreme example of what Aristotle talks about when he, you know, talks about uh, knowing one's audience, right? I mean, he realizes that he's writing to a, a, a person who is used to flattery, so he warns him against flattery while flattering him. <laughs> and I just think that I just just glorious rhetorical skill. I also think that the whole, you know, divide and conquer move, you know, to play to the high pontiff sense of position in the world. Uh, again, I mean, just a, a glorious little example of pathos in rhetoric. You know, uh, he's very decidedly, whether ironically or not. And again, it, it, this is one of those things when I was reading it, David and Michael, uh, 
I couldn't figure out, you know, if this is my own 21st century sense of irony kicking in, or if in the 16th century they would have read this as heavily ironic as I do. Mm. What do you think? I think he's being ironic. Okay. Oh, maybe not. Yeah. Maybe not so much ironic as I mean, he's clearly trying to save us. I don't think he means what he says. I don't think he's trying to be funny exactly. Okay, that's what I'm trying yeah. to get at. I mean, you know, uh, is this one of those things where he writes? Well, I mean, you know, the and I know it's a it's an older tradition than this, but it seems that in the last 15 years or so, we've had a whole lot of open letter to this or that group or this or that person where mm-hmm. the letter isn't at all meant for the person in question. Sure. And I wonder if this is this sort of missile. I mean, you know, uh, given that this treatise is going to be published and is going to be read by uh, largely people who are sympathetic with Luther, uh, mm-hmm. if this is one of those, you know, an open letter to Barack Obama, you know, or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I I don't know. I don't know, because if you read, I mean, you can read other, um, you know, other medieval, uh, even before that, writings before that, um, or, uh, well, e- even re- read the dedicor- dedicatory epistle at the beginning of Calvin's Institutes, uh-huh. right? You know, except, you know, this time. It was it was um, pointed at a at a monarch whom he hoped to persuade to his side. I mean, th- this this kind of language addressed at, at people in, in power is um, kind of a genre in itself. Um, now, whether or not he's engaging in it ironically, I mean, I suppose that he's he's perfectly capable of that. I mean, the Martin Luther we know and love has you know has a rapier and sometimes a bludgeon wit, um, <laughs> but you know it. it if he didn't mean it ironically, I don't think he's really pushing the genre that far. Okay. All right. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Hey, my, uh, my edition has a uh, letter of dedication to mayor mole fort. Oh, you, interesting. Either I, of you and... happen to know who that is. It sounds like a Simpsons character. Well, sure. Well, the, the alliteration <laughs> helps. <laughs> At least it's not mayor McCheese. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I was working off of that uh, Fordham University edition that I linked to on the Facebook page. So it says here I he's the mayor that. of Zwickau. <laughs> now he really does Zwickau. sound like a Simpsons character, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Zwickau, the most fun place to live in north central Germany. So, <laughs> anyway, I didn't so, find anything particularly interesting about the letter. I just wondered oh, okay, if, okay, if, if this okay. was a, uh, an important person historically. Apparently not. Yeah. <laughs> it may as well have been dedicated to Mayor McCheese. Yeah, who, who's he play for? <laughs> uh, well, Michael, digging into the treatise itself, uh, the treatise's first half, roughly speaking, is a manifesto, really, on faith and works, and it's not hard to see why this treatise stands as one of the monuments of the early Reformation. Uh, in the terms of this treatise, what is faith, Michael, and how does it stand separate from works, and what dangers come from confusing the two? Well, the works thing is easier to talk about. I may need your help with the faith. But, you know, he's he's writing it into an environment where indulgences were normal in the Catholic Church, where you could buy your friends and family time out of purgatory by using the imputed righteousness of a saint, which you paid for um, 
by funding a church building project, I believe, and uh, thus, thus uh, you know, lessened your loved one's time in purgatory. This is clearly a works-based, I don't even want to call it a theology, because I, I, I don't think that that was primarily a theological move, right? I, I think it's primarily a political or social move, but it, that, that is clearly a works-based system. Mm-hmm. So among Luther's objections to the Catholicism of his, his day is that it emphasizes these works as though a human being could save himself. And, 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 that act, and he says that, that is like pretending that something external is able to change who you are, right? He says no external thing has any influence in producing Christian righteousness or freedom or in producing unrighteousness or servitude. He talks about how a good man can do all these things um, that are usually seen as bad and a bad man can do all these things that are usually seen as good and it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, that that doesn't actually change what they are. Mm-hmm. And he says what what's necessary instead is the word of God, the gospel, the, I, and by this, I assume he means the the death and resurrection of Christ preached by people who have some sort of spiritual authority to teach it. And, and I mean, he even affirms to some extent or another the s- structure of the church. He says they have been instituted, but they've only been instituted in order to preach this gospel. And to the extent they're not preaching mm-hmm. the gospel, to the extent they're f- preaching a foreign gospel of um, justification by works, they have, you know, turned their back on their calling. They've, they've undermined their own foundation, as it were. Mm. So the word of God comes to you, and that's what makes you holy. But apparently faith is this thing that allows you to accept it. And he says, interestingly enough, the first thing that happens when you accept, when you use faith to accept the word of God, the moment you begin to have faith, he says, you learn that all things in you are altogether blameworthy, sinful, and damnable, as the apostle says in Romans 3. Mm-hmm. So faith mm-hmm. is this thing that, first of all, accepts the gospel of Christ, accepts the resurrection. And it convicts you of what you are and what you're not possibly capable of becoming. And he has a long passage where he talks about how the purpose of the law is not so much to give you a a line to live by as to show you that you can't possibly live by the line. right? And that's right out of Romans. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe Calvin says something very similar. It must have been a common, um, common idea among the Reformers. Mm-hmm. Oh, certainly. I'd say it's the core of the Reformers. Mm-hmm. But but faith is the thing that allows you to receive justification and sanctification, and your works are kind of beside the point, although we'll get to them later, I know. Mm-hmm. And and he, he says that faith is the wedding ring between the marriage of um, Christ and the church. And and, and because his, he has kind of an extended metaphor here that, that um, they essentially live in a joint property state, which means that God, uh, Christ takes on our sin and we get his righteousness when, when we marry him. And faith is the kind of agent that makes this marriage happen. Mm-hmm. Although mm-hmm. I was frustrated reading this, and maybe I didn't read it closely enough. It is the end of the semester. Um, <laughs> that th- He does not really explain what faith means. I couldn't right, tell. I couldn't right. tell if... If if he meant just doctrinal acceptance, or if he meant some sort of interior state, nor does he say where it really comes from. Mm-hmm. So I was hoping one of you could tell me that. Well, I mean, honestly, I mean, the fact that he does leave so much, at least in his written treatises, for interpretation on that score, I think that's one of the reasons why he is so easily 
turned into a straw man. And we're going to talk later about my own tendency to do that. Uh, but David, before we get there, I mean, is there anything you'd add to the question of faith? Well, I, I mean, I, I think there certainly is. The, the, there's certainly more in it um, throughout the. He 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 gets a, he gets into more detail about you know what what the role of works is, mm-hmm. um, you know where the faith comes from. I think what its connection is with preaching, but um, those answers kind of go with other questions. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 but but one thing I'm glad that you did highlight, Michael, is that, I mean, this very clear sense of the law as something that is uh, entirely, and I'm, I'm using this in a philosophical sense, not in a moral evaluation sense, but it's entirely negative. Its role mm-hmm. is to negate. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm reading, again, from the text that's available on that Fordham website regarding the law. Uh, they were ordained, however, for the purpose of showing man to himself that through them he may learn his own impotence for good and may despair of his own strength. For this reason, they are called the Old Testament and are so. So, I mean, you know, uh, and I mean, this is not, you know, you uh, only present in this treatise. His commentary on the Galatians certainly hits on this. His disputation with Erasmus hits on this. I mean, this is definitely one of Luther's core ideas that the law is there to negate any sense that we have of our own uh, worth as unredeemed sinners, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and, I mean, and you know, I mean, it, it's I, as a person who did his seminary work largely in the Old Testament, this is the part of Luther that I that makes me itchy. I'll admit. Well, I, why is that? Why, is, why does uh, it make just, you itchy? What now? Why does it make you itchy? Uh, here's why. Because I mean, we've got passages like Psalm 19 where you know. Oh, how I love your law. You know, I meditate on it day and night and I'm thinking, okay, so you just really love feeling like crap. (laughs) Yeah. I, well, I, I I think there's, I think there's ways to, to fit those two. But I mean, if, if you consider that, um, that law in court includes all of Torah, Mm -hmm. not, not just the, the, not just the precepts themselves, but uh, also um, God's character as revealed uh, in narratives as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I anyway. I, all right, that, all right. <laughs> I I can accept that. I can accept that. Like I said, I mean, just again, I mean, I I would go back to Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. I mean, they seem to be talking about precepts. And in mm-hmm. fact, they name precepts specifically. Well, and and, and you can't let Luther oh, off the, you can't let Luther off the hook that easy either, because he talks, he says the entire scripture of God is divided into two parts: commandments and promises. And he rather clearly associates the entirety of the Old Testament with the commandments, because he gives well, a definition of commandments, and then he says that is why they are called the Old Testament and constitute the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm going to contest that a little bit though, because he does talk about Abraham as a figure of promise rather than a precept. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that there are traditions within the church that, you know, pretty much mark the boundary between last verse of Malachi and first verse of Matthew as the supreme distinction. I think with Luther, the dividing lines are more in the sense of indicative versus imperative. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think he's also using the word testament there to mean, uh, to mean covenant. 
mm. and not uh, not that portion of the canon. I was right. going to say it's right. in it's in it's capitalized, but then it would be capitalized in the German because they capitalize nouns. Right, yeah. right, <laughs> mm-hmm. right, <laughs> right, right, right. So, yeah, I mean, I you know, I I would. I would divide things up a little bit differently in Luther's system, you know, simply because he does often talk about promises of the Old Testament. Or of, yeah, oh, and there I go, confusing terminology as I <laughs> clarify terminology. Um, well, at any rate, David, you mentioned the preaching section of this treatise. Uh, and mm. I mean, that, you know, because I've been uh, interim preacher for about a year and a half now, I mean, uh, anytime that I encounter theological work on the practice of preaching it it interests me so i'm gonna give you an oversimplified summary of what's going on with the preaching section and Mm -hmm. your job is going to be to tell me where i'm missing important terms so it seems to me that luther is holding preaching to be a moment in which the rehearsal of the gospel the death and resurrection of christ stirs the hearts of the hearers to greater affection for god uh in whom they have faith so in other words, you know, I tend to read Luther in this treatise as a sort of homiletical sentimentalist. Uh, <laughs> what am I getting wrong there? Um, I think he'd probably hit you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and cuss me out while he was doing so, but this is Luther. No, that's true. That's true. <laughs> no. Um, well, it, okay, it, it, it can sound that way, but... Um, he does actually speak disparagingly of those who preach. Um, and, and again, I'm using the same Fordham University, trans, uh, the, the translation at the Fordham University yeah. site that you are. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, well, I, our paragraphs aren't even numbered. But in the paragraph begins which, that begins returning to the subject which we had begun. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think, I, I think it is made clear by these considerations it is not sufficient nor a Christian course to preach the works, life, and words of Christ in a historic manner as facts which it suffices to know as an example to frame our life. So first, he sees that as an incorrect kind of preaching. First, if if you're just going to preach the life of Christ and the works of Christ as simply, these are now things you need to go and do likewise. Right, so Christ is not, first and foremost for Luther, the moral exemplar. Yes, so so first that point. Okay, I'm with um, you that far. I'm with you that far. Okay. Uh, second, don't abandon the story of Christ altogether and just you know read stuff from the church fathers or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the other one that he that he rejects is there are now not a few persons who preach and read about Christ with the object of moving the human affections to sympathize with Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, to indignation against the Jews and other childish and womanish absurdities of that kind, which I'm not exactly how sure how how much I want to identify indignation against Jews as a womanish absurdity. I've never really seen that. Um, <laughs> Although it's amusing that you know Luther here, who rightly later on his in his career earns a reputation as a bit of an anti-Semite, here is calling anti-Semitism an absurdity and womanish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, and and yes. So so okay, two two kind of extremes. One, don't just preach Christ as a moral exemplar, but two, mm-hmm. uh there was another kind of preaching that just seemed to hold up look at the pitiable Christ on the cross. 
and right, feel right. sorry for him. Yeah, this is almost Friedrich Nietzsche's Jesus. Okay. Uh, anyway, it? sorry. Yeah, it really <laughs> no, it really is. It really is. I mean, when he talks about Christianity as the religion of ressentiment, mm. this is the Jesus he's talking about. How absurd and womanish. Um, <laughs> yeah. So... It, it, okay, so may, maybe I, I think this is this is this is how he's going to think about a a preaching that's just trying to make people uh, feel a certain way. All right, uh, now he gets into describing what he thinks ought to be done. Mm-hmm. Preaching ought to be the object, ought to have the object of promoting faith in him, so that he may not only be Christ, but Christ for you and for me. And that what is said of him and what he is called may work in us. Um, so it's 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 not simply that the that the story is meant to catch the affections, like a, I don't know, like a commercial with sad abused puppies and Sarah McLaughlin singing over the top of them. <laughs> um, that this is meant to be a story, uh, a story that you also find yourself inside of. That this is not just the story of the Christ, but the story of your Christ. And then what is said of him is also, it, it, is, is some, it means something to you as well. Um, this faith is produced and is maintained by preaching why Christ came, what he has brought us and given to us, and what profit and advantage he may be, uh, he may be received, he, or to what profit and advantage he is to be received and so the the faith comes by hearing um but it's hearing hearing the gospel presented as a story that has relevance to you that you are one of those for whom christ died um and this uh is meant to awaken love in us not merely a a sympathy for pitiful jesus on the cross or some other kind of you know mere human emotion, but a love that then motivates, motivates the person to do something, uh, motivates beyond, beyond mere feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, and that this is a, this is a love that can't be attained by law keeping, not, not a love that can be attained by works because works are external. Um, but only, only this love, which is born of faith can change a heart. Does that make sense? That makes some sense. Michael, would you add anything to that? I don't think so. I think you guys covered it pretty well. I, uh, you know, I don't have too much to say about preaching. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think it's interesting, Dave, and I, and I think you answered it quite well. I, I, I would just add to that that, I mean, uh, just hearing you describe that, it occurred to me that what Luther is doing here is talking about different kinds of narrative inside of which the Christian life can be situated. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's interesting. I, especially, you know, here 500 years later where we are, uh, it occurs to me that, you know, a lot of the strong theological differences among, well, I mean, just even among the circles that we're familiar with have to do with what kind of story we would tell about what's going on with Jesus on the cross. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I, I'm, yeah, I mean, I, you know, that, that strong sense of competing narrative is really what I, I didn't pay attention to when I was first reading through it. But now 
I'm looking at, you know, that taxonomy of bad preaching and then good preaching that you just laid out. I mean, that seems to be what's going on there. So it's fascinating that, you know, the, uh, and, you know, I've got narrative on the brain right now because I'm going to be teaching Alistair McIntyre here in May. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, the idea that the act of Christ dying on cross uh, is something that has to be situated in narrative and that there is no removing it from narrative, but it's always situating it in better or worse narratives, depending on what the truth of the gospel is. So I, I, I dig that. I think you brought something out of that that I didn't see before. That's good. Well, frankly, um, I, when I was reading that section, I kept thinking, well, this is where Philip Carey's getting it from. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. This, this, the, yeah, Phil Carey's book, uh, uh, Good News for Anxious Christians, I mean, is definitely influenced by this treatise. Oh, man, yeah, is the, it ever. <laughs> the, 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 the looking at the cross versus looking at yourself looking at the cross. Yes. Um, I mean, this, that's, that, that is this paragraph pretty much. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, for my money, it's good stuff. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, you know, I am, like I said, I mean, I try to confess my sins whenever I'm dealing with <laughs> I am almost incapable of giving him a fair shake, uh, partly because I'm such an Erasmus guy. Uh, but I mean, I definitely have to tip my hat to this section on preaching. I mean, he... And- Go ahead. Well, the part of you that's not Erasmus is like medieval Catholic. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, between uh, between Erasmus and Dante, yeah, I'm I'm predispos- predis- predisposed. There we go. Uh, not to like what Luther's going to say here. So, uh, <laughs> I do appreciate what he's doing here, though. Though what he says here isn't isn't actually that different than. Um, well, some things you might find in Bernard of Clairvaux or uh, Anselm, um, you know, both of them talk about, you know, looking at, you know, looking at the story of the gospel, looking at the story of Christ, you know, crucified, died, buried, resurrected um, in this in the, in this kind of way. And they talk about, you know, love in similar mm-hmm. ways, too. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I don't think Luther is that rad, as radical a departure as he's sometimes seen. From oh, the, and see, uh, I, I, I still take him to be a pretty radical departure, but that's, I'm, I'm going to pitch the radical departure that I see, and I might be wrong to Michael here. Um, now, Michael, I, I, I say this, I mean, now that we've brought up Phil Carey, uh, I wasn't going to mention him here, but it seems like I have to now. Luther claims <laughs> in his section on works that good people do good works, uh, but good works do not make people good. So my first thought as someone who loves Aristotle and has benefited from Alistair McIntyre and who encourages my students to read Phil Carey uh, is that Luther is ignoring the fact that there are virtues that develop because of action, uh, that there is a an element of habit, to use the common translation of Aristotle there, uh, that something genuinely good arises when human beings practice good lives. Uh, Michael, does Luther stand as strongly against that moral tradition as I'm making it out, or am I turning Luther into a mustache twirler, as I tend to do, let's be honest? No, I think he does. <laughs> I, I, think, I think you're right on this one. And I think part of it, again, is that environment into which he's writing. He has to push hard on the other side um, 
because because he feels like he's up against such a violation of that idea. Mm-hmm. He he at least feels, and I don't know Renaissance Catholicism enough to know what this looked like beyond indulgences. So maybe one of you can help me. He he clearly at least feels that uh, Catholicism has devolved into a system whereby it doesn't matter what you are on the inside as long as you do things right on the outside. Mm-hmm. And so faced with that, he um, he he perhaps goes too far in the other direction because you're, you're, I think you're absolutely right. I think he says, um, and it's almost explicit that that it doesn't matter what you do on the outside. What matters is who you are on the inside. Have you been renewed by faith or whatever? And then, I mean, he he's not an antinomian, right? And that's the that's the danger of of reading the first three quarters of this treatise and not finishing it because if you... oh yeah and we're gonna finish it we're gonna finish it okay are we, are we talking about antinomianism did i miss that question well no no no. i mean we're gonna talk about the place of works in the end of the treatise so yeah i'm so... not i just want to make sure i mean i'm not trying to ignore the last part of this treatise and pretend luther didn't write oh, it oh yeah no and i didn't think you were <laughs> but but people do right and and people oh, say, sure sure pe- people take that dismissal of works-based justification in the first half of the treatise and say, well, that means it doesn't matter at all what I do. And he says, well, no, not at all. I mean, your, your works follow from your sanctification or your justification. I get those two terms confused. So forgive me, Christ the center. <laughs> um, but what, what they don't do is actually enact your justification. They don't actually change you on the inside. Instead, you perform these works because you are already changed on the inside. Mm-hmm. And the older mm-hmm. I get, the less sense that makes to me. <laughs> all, right, all right david i need you to correct me here since michael seems unwilling <laughs> um two, two things two things um first uh, i think luther it wants us to take very seriously um the idea that um whatever is done without faith is sin so the works by themselves are not going to change um, what is what is essential about you and and in fact what is done what is done without faith um, he says is actually uh, is actually sinful um, you know a Christian being consecrated by his faith does good works but he is not by these works made more sacred or more Christian that is the effect of faith alone but unless he is previously a believer and a Christian, none of his works have any value at all. They would really be impious and damnable sins. Because he sees work without faith as all part of this human attempt to um, to attain righteousness by self-improvement. So he's, he, he's, he's, not, he's not interested in talking about virtue in terms of Aristotle's habits. What he's interested in is whether or not this is good enough before the judgment seat. Yeah, he's not interested in what kind of person you are, right? Which is what which is what Aristotle's virtue ethics accomplish. They make you into a certain sort of person. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and then and then also the I you know, the the whole premise of the, you know, first chunk of first Corinthians thirteen that without love all the works are dead as well. And so his you know, I, I think I think the answer that's that's sort of implicit here is to say, you know, without faith, 
you know, without faith works are sin, without love works are empty. And so what we need to focus on is what get, you know, what is, where does faith come from? Where does love come from? We have to get those in order for the works to, to eat, to, to even, to even not be sinful. Um, but then, you know, I think, I think there is a role that, that, that he has for works, uh, um, as, as things that, as things that do change you for the positive, but that's, well, that's for, that's in the next section. Yeah. I'm sorry about that, Grubbs. I know to segment this, treat us out and try to pretend that the parts don't all inform each other is tough, but that's the nature of a podcast. We got to or I guess that's the fault of my notes is that we're taking it in segments. <laughs> do, do you guys do you guys think it's possible for a structure of habits? I don't want to use the word works because it's so freighted in Lutheran theology. A structure of habits might actually bring a person faith. Like Max Max Beerbaum tells this. It's a parable, you know. It's a funny little story about a guy who wants to marry. He's a he's a a rake and he wants to marry a Christian woman. And so he puts on a mask. He wears the, the, the mask of a saint and he marries her and they stay married. And you know, the guilt is tearing him apart on the inside. And 10 years later, he takes off the mask and lo and behold, his face has actually turned into the saint's face somehow by pretending to be a saint all these years, by building up a structure of saint like habits and what have you, he has been given faith does that parable have any actual real-world application, or is Beerbaum misunderstanding how faith works? Well, I, David, I'll let you comment on that, and then I'll hit it from a different <laughs> angle. Um, well, I, 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 I'm not familiar. I'm not familiar with that, with that parable. But as soon as you bring it up, I'm reminded of uh, John Dunn's. Uh, Good Friday riding westward uh-huh. um, in which he is talking about his face um, uh, the the image the image of God in us being restored um, both through looking at Christ who is who is the image of the of the invisible God um, but also through um, through the sufferings of this life through the through the process of becoming being made holy that uh that in the end and this is the climax of the poem he says that you know in you know when when my face um when my face becomes a reflection of your face and i'm paraphrasing he's got metaphors for it when my face is a reflection of your face then i can look you in the like like Christ of, of, of the image in us being restored like that of the image of God. Um, I mean, I, th I think that's part of this, this theological idiom that Luther's working in, but I don't think he's going to anchor it in behaviors and in a mask. Um, I think he's going to find it in the faith and then the love because it's, because it's the faith and the love um, that come from us being, uh, sons and not servants, mm -hmm. and he sees he sees servanthood as part of work, but but uh, a sonship or being a child of God is that faith and love thing, and so we we will we will at attain a familial likeness <laughs> to God, but 
through an internal change, not an external adjustment. Mm-hmm. I just wonder if that internal change can come can come from the external adjustment. Yeah, I mean, and you know, I I can't remember if this is in Carrie's book or if it was in the lecture that I attended, but he talked about faith coming to us from the outside in, you mm-hmm. know, through the practices of the church. And I think, okay, you know, that, I, that, you know, as much as, you know, good news for anxious Christians jives with what Luther is doing here on some levels, on that level, it seems that he's being more of an Aristotelian than a Lutheran. Or Pelagian, <laughs> as I'm sure the Lutherans would tell you. <laughs> now, Michael. Hey, <laughs> I'm, I'm the one who brought up the question to begin with. So, but I mean, I, like I said, the, the older I get, the less this schema makes sense to me. And the more I wonder if it's not possible, if, if faith is not somehow a product of what you do as well. Well, and, and this is where, you know, my own, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I become gladder and gladder that I actually wrote the dissertation I wrote because I mean, this contest between Dante and Luther, I think is, something that I'm still wrestling with and I probably will be for some time still, but you know, Dante's idea that the exempla in purgatory that actually form the saved, uh, can be exempla from Republican Rome, right? So that their actions, I mean, and this seems to contradict Luther, you know, that the actions of the generous are generous, no matter whether they come from a faith in the true God or whether it is simply, generosity per se, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Luther seems to deny the possibility of generosity or humility per se. And, you know, he, he says it here in this treatise and he says it in the uh, dispute with Erasmus. And, you know, David, you've already uh, paraphrased it that, you know, the act that is apparently good but is not directed internally towards God uh, is by definition sinful, and that seems mm-hmm. to be a, an assertion that Dante just can't get on board with. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So I, I you know, I, and I think it, you know, like I said, I think it's my love for Dante that makes Luther on this point uh, so unpalatable to me. And it's it's the existentialist for me, for whom all you really have is action, right? Even if you look at Kierkegaard, even faith is an action; it's a habit. Mm-hmm. So. I mean that's that's where I'm coming from too. Oh well, uh, though I I think there are some things that 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 Luther, that both Luther and Dante could could w- would see as 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 important to this picture, mm-hmm. um, namely the um, the propulsive or perhaps the um, oh, the motivating force of love itself. Mm-hmm. That it's love that gets the souls through purgatory. Oh, certainly, certainly. I wouldn't deny that. I guess, I guess so... here's where I see the, the difference, David. <laughs> and you can tell me if I'm getting this utterly wrong, where mm-hmm. Dante always entertains the possibility of hypocrisy. Luther would assert the necessity of hypocrisy in anyone mm. who does not confess Christ. Okay. I mean, does that is that a, a distinction that you think is present there in the text? Or obviously across the text, because Luther and Dante actually didn't have any conversations with each other. <laughs> Directly. Yeah. Well, as far as 
<laughs> so far as we know in life. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> I mean, for all we know, maybe they're buds now. Could be. Could be. On which um, circle of purgatory? That's what I want to know. <laughs> uh, What's the, the one for the body? Pole. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> awesome. But anyway, uh, I'm sorry. I cut you off, David. Go ahead and get the last word in on this. Oh, I, I don't like having the last word on anything. But um, Well, don't worry. Our listeners will take us to task. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't remember what I was saying. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Well, let's go ahead and move on. I'm, I'm looking at time. I don't want to run us too late here. Uh, Michael, I do want to back up to the thesis of this piece, which really only makes sense once you finish the piece, which is why we're just now getting to it. Uh, but the treatise proper starts with two propositions that read on first glance as a contradiction. Uh, for our listeners' benefit, uh, read those two claims from the translation you're using and, oops, this is for grubs, uh, and talk <laughs> no a little bit about how they play out in the home stretch of the treatise. Go for it, David. <laughs> um, well, these two premises are as follows. A Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. So, um, in the first regard, the Christian man is most free and Lord of all and subject to none in the sense of the the spiritual inner man is what he called the spiritual nature the soul the spiritual inward new man um it's it is in this uh it is in this spiritual nature that um that faith um that faith is what justifies and it's in the spiritual new man that uh that love is born in uh you know, as uh, as an effect of faith, um, and so the the new man having having been the spiritual man having been justified by faith is free from the law, um, does not does not need to perform works of law in order to achieve righteous status before God because that righteousness um, has been uh, has been received by faith. Uh, faith itself is is um, is what counts as justification for for the sinner man, and so in that sense, the Christian man is subject to no one and the free Lord of all, because as Romans eight says, Romans eight twenty eight says that that all things are working together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to His God's purpose. Um, namely, everything in life. Um, is tending towards the salvation of the one who has this inner reality and inner justification of faith. Um, however, in regards to the the outward man, the old man, the fleshly man, well, this still needs reform. And it is in this regard that we are servants and that we are subject. Um and this is this is that that second half that if you skip it, um, it makes a difference. Mm-hmm. The inner man uh, is being conformed to God and created after the image of God through faith. I knew I remember image stuff, um, and it rejoices and delights itself in 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 Christ. But um, it must also uh, that you know it it engages in these works in order to. Uh, 
subject the lusts of the bodies to uh, of the of of the flesh to to tame its sinful urges um i honestly i think this is the part of the essay where we see virtue shaping people mm-hmm. um it's in regard to the outer man and i wonder whether it's it's almost a um maybe maybe a difference in terms of the way luther talks about human psychology that's different from us mm-hmm. um that that it's that it's this this uh what he calls outer man fleshly man natural man old man um that has a need for discipline in order to become better that that this is this is the part where he's going to look at dante and say um yes we need we need the practice of virtues to make this aspect of us better mm-hmm. um but at the whole, at the same time it's this it's this faith and love in the inner man that's propelling us to, to pursue um the progressive holy making of of the of the natural man that's my read yeah i, I can see that david i guess my Again, I, it might just be that I'm not grasping what Luther is after here. I, I will always grant that possibility. <laughs> but it seems <laughs> like that there's so much overlap there that Luther himself wants to say that, you know, Aristotelian habituation can't touch this territory here. Uh, mm-hmm. But then, you know, with the next breath, say, well, this part here is going to be, you know, utterly wretched until Aristotelian habituation deals with it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I guess the, the outer inner thing, I'm not sure how far in the outer goes and I'm not sure how, how far out the inner goes. Certainly. Well, I mean, uh, you're, Dante's not going to make a distinction, right? I mean, cause hell and heaven are where the, the inner becomes the outer. Or mm-hmm. where yeah, the outer yeah. becomes the inner, depending on how you want to look at it. Right. Right. So, well, I mean, that might, who you are. Yeah, that might be my intellectual difficulty here, David, is precisely with that distinction between outer and inner. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, you know, well, I, I just, yeah, I just summarized it so I won't keep vamping. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that that that's that seems to be, uh, it, well, I mean, this seems to be the mechanism by which he makes sense of um, what can be construed as contradictory utterances mm. um, in in the New Testament in regard to faith and works. Right. Um, this this is this is how he says uh, this this is how for Luther they they fit together that right. there is a um, there is a new man within us, but there is also a a, a, a new creation within us. You know, as the last chapter of Galatians says. Um, it's not works of the law that matters, but a new creation, and that there is a new creation here. But at the same time, there's still, um, you know, there's still a flesh that doesn't do what we want it to do, and so it is sci- the the thing that we that you know that aspect of us that is not doing what we want it to do is us. At the same time, that the aspect of us. I mean, the the one that wants things to be different and the ones that keeps doing the things that the other one wants to be different are both us. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and and this is how he's he's situating those two. Well, you know, Augustine I, Augustine talks about 
in in the confessions before his conversion, he describes himself as having not even just two wills, but a thousand wills headed in every direction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm not gonna lie. Sometimes I feel like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I can I can see that. I can see that. And I mean, honestly, I mean, you know, what I really like about this treatise, David, and I mean, I I don't want to turn this into an hour of me bashing this treatise, but, you know, (laughs) the, uh, oh, let me see here. Well, where's my, where's my favorite paragraph here? I have it marked, but, uh, oh, goodness. Well, I'll, I'll just summarize since I can't find the passage right now, but I mean, the whole idea that, you know, for Luther, uh, oh, here it is, here it is. Uh, it's toward the end of the treatise. We give this rule, the good things which we have from God ought to flow from one to another and become common to all so that every one of us may, as it were, put on his neighbor and so behave towards him as if he were himse- he himself were in his place. They flowed and do flow from Christ to us. He put us on and acted for us as if he himself were what we are. From us they flow to those who have need of them so that my faith and righteousness ought to be laid down before God as a covering and intercession for the sins of my neighbor, which I am to take on myself and so labor and endure servitude for them as if they were my own, for thus has Christ done for us. So, I mean, here, you know, I mean, it's not the WWJD oversimplified version, but it is because we are encompassed in this grand story of salvation, it actually Mm -hmm. extends outward from us as it extended outward from Christ. And I mean, I, I think that ethical vision right there is the real gold here, right? I mean, the idea that um, being in Christ, and again, this is where the distinction between inner and outer, I, I, you know, here, here's where I think Luther outruns his own theory, <laughs> and wh- <laughs> which is why I like it so much, right? Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, the distinction between inner and outer kind of breaks down there, right? Because the story of salvation, by definition, extends beyond the outer mm-hmm. rather than remaining inner. So, I mean, I, you know, I, it, it's interesting. And again, I mean, this is why I wanted to have this conversation with you guys, because this is a treatise I've wrestled with for probably 15 years. Uh, and, you know, I wanted to see how you guys dealt with, you know, what I see as some of the well, I mean, uh, frankly, as some of the theory that doesn't rise to the ethics, you know, I think that his ethical vision here is just glorious. But then I back up to his strong distinction. And, and David, I think you put your finger on it between inner and outer. Uh, and I mean, I, I just don't think that that distinction is capacious enough to get to where he gets ethically, although I'm real glad he gets there ethically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, uh, uh, again, I, I wonder the 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 degree to which this is um, to which the, to which the issue is is how how do we talk about ourselves on the inside? Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, is is you know how much of it is that we're disagreeing about, I don't know, the role of faith or the role of works or whatever, or, or is it just how it is that we even understand what we are and how we are to change? Sure. Sure. You know, Mm -hmm. anyway, I can agree with that. 
Well, anyway, guys, I'm, I'm looking at the clock and we've been recording for a good long span here. So I'm going to take it home here. going to take it around the horn. Michael, for real this time. Uh, we, we've just spent a very brief time talking about a very rich text. So for our closing number, uh, pick out a strong idea from this text that you think should benefit Christians in 2013. Uh, comment on it and do our neighbors the service of some good intellectual work. Uh, after you're done, Michael, pass the microphone to Grubbs. As someone who wrote a dissertation about how people in the post-World War II era deal with religious ritual and adapt it for their own purposes, I was very interested in what he had to say about ritual and ceremony at the end of the text. Mm. Um, and it's what you would expect if you've been to a Lutheran church. It's, it's what you would expect. He says you can't just get rid of ceremony, just like you can't get rid of works. So the Christian, he, he talks about earlier about the Christian having to walk this path between the people who want to get rid of works altogether and the antinomians. And he says you have mm-hmm. to do the same thing with ceremony. You, you, ceremony has to be able to be changed. It has to be able to be discarded if it's no longer what it's supposed to be. But at the same time, you can't just throw it all out because ceremony is something we have to live with. Mm-hmm. Um, a simple, he talks about these simple-minded, ignorant men weak in the faith um who 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 can't handle the the ritual and they have to you have to you have to treat them with love uh just like you have to treat the the people who are uh overly concerned with it so i just thought that was interesting i don't know how much intelligent i have to say about it <laughs> david um i liked again i wish there were page numbers um I, re- I really did like this this idea that um, the pursuit um, the pursuit of works um, of virtue for its own sake. Um, this 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 uh, he has this bit where he says this Leviathan this perverted notion about works is invincible where sincere faith is wanting. For those sanctified, and I think he's being ironic there, those sanctified doers of works cannot but hold it till faith which destroys it comes and reigns in the heart. Nature cannot expel it by her own power, nay, cannot even see it for what it is, but considers it as a most holy will. And when custom steps in beside and strengthens this pravity of nature, as has happened by means of impious teachers, then the evil is incurable. And leads astray multiples to er, uh, multitudes to irreparable ruin. Therefore, though it is good to preach and write about penitence, confession, and satisfaction, yet if we stop there and don't go on to teach faith, such te- such teaching is without doubt deceitful and devilish. For Christ, speaking by his servant John, not only said, "Repent ye," but added, "For the kingdom of heaven is at hand." So, you know, this idea that it's it, the problem with works is not that penitence is bad, that confession of sin is bad, that, uh, you know, trying to uh, trying to make right when you've uh, when you when you've offended um, is 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 not a bad instinct in itself. But without a faith that sees, you know, the great work of God in Christ on our behalf for our salvation, um, that is in itself always going to be insufficient. 
Um, so the, the, the call to repentance always has to come along with the kingdom of God is at hand, and how do we see, uh, how do we see that uh, in, in the work of Christ, and, you know, in his life and in his death and in his resurrection and in, well, his, 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 uh, his reign from his throne now. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's good stuff. We can't just make it about what we do. Yeah. If I had to pick one idea that we didn't dwell on a whole lot and I kind of did in the last question, but I'm going to return to it here. It's this idea that in Christ, any anxieties that we have about God's regard for us, and I'm echoing Philip Carey here, I realize, uh, those are no longer on the table. We're not allowed to be anxious about those anymore. So therefore, we are freed to do good for our neighbor. Uh, and I think that, you know, that is just powerful, mm. powerful stuff. Uh, it is a vision of ethics that, you know, because we are those ambassadors for the kingdom, because we are the body of Christ, because we have been saved, therefore we can live for the other in a way that we were not capable of in our narrative of perdition and salvation. Uh, and, you know, like I've said before, I mean, I have my, my difficulties here and there with Luther, but as far as that ethical vision goes, I think it's just absolutely dynamite. So mm. that's where I'll leave that. I want to thank David and Michael. You have uh, once again, you know, allowed me to wander off on my quasi-Arminian Anabaptist wannabe rabbit trails here, and you've you've brought me back. You've corrected me as I've gone wild here. Uh, next <laughs> week, David, what are we going to be talking about? Well, I did what I often do when I'm, uh, you know, short on inspiration and. Uh, I happen to note on the calendar that we will be recording on uh, Walpurgisnacht, um, which uh, led me to the the topic of witches. So we'll be oh taking a stab at Macbeth and Goethe, and you know maybe some other fun stuff. Witches, good times. Cool. In the meantime, as you're waiting for that episode to drop, you can, of course, catch up with us at ChristianHumanist.org, our website. You can find us on Facebook. You can email us at TheChristianHumanist at gmail.com. And you can, of course, and you should, not because it'll make God like you more, but because it would be good for us. Go on to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, write us a review. Uh, all of that stuff we always appreciate. We always love to hear from our listeners. So let us know what you think. Tell us where we're wrong. That's why we do this stuff, folks. At any rate, until next week, this is Nathan Gilmore on behalf of Michael Farmer and David Grubb saying, also from Luther, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. Don't Love you.